What happens to the hellbender happens to us. Just like I'm learning their behavior to find their eggs, they're learning my behavior for when I'm searching for eggs because they've seen me every year for many, many years now. And you think maybe they have a sense you're looking out for these eggs. I mean, if they're not trying to bite you anymore. Well, or they just gave up. <laughs> I might, might win that, but, but who knows what they're thinking at that time. But I mean, ultimately, our thinking is we're doing the right thing for this animal to save it. Absolutely. The St. Louis Zoo, in connection with the Missouri Department of Conservation and the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, is doing a great job of trying to bring the hellbender back from the brink. And here's how charismatic these aquatic salamanders are. There's actually a great song about them by the St. Louis band Firedog. The mysterious kindred fungus, the hellbender is now an endangered species. I'm Sarah Fenske. This is St. Louis on the Air. The hellbender is the largest aquatic salamander in North America, and two subspecies, the Ozark hellbender and the eastern hellbender, have a long history in Missouri. But both populations are in trouble here. Absent extraordinary efforts, scientists fear their extinction in Missouri. Now, those efforts are underway, and joining us today to talk about them is Jeff Brigler. He's the state herpetologist for the Missouri Department of Conservation. Jeff, thank you for joining us today. Thank you very much, Sarah. And we're also joined by Mark Warner. He's the zoological manager of herpetology at the St. Louis Zoo. Mark, welcome. Hi, thank you. So, Mark, let's start with the easy part. What makes a hellbender a hellbender? The easy part. Uh, they're an aquatic salamander, um, a relic species that's been in our in our rivers for a very, very long time. When you call them a relic species, does that mean uh, they existed in prehistoric times? Uh, for sure, yes. Uh, dated uh, easily probably millions of years back, yes. Okay, and, and they continue to survive today? Correct. Now, when we say we're, they're the largest of their kind, how big are we talking? Um, on average, uh, the Ozarks are smaller than Easterns, um, but about just over 20 inches. Okay, so these are these are longer than a foot. These are not the tiny, maybe cute little salamanders that you might be envisioning. They're cute, but correct, they are larger. <laughs> well, okay, cute. You're weighing in on an important debate here. I'm so torn about whether they're super ugly or super cute. It's like there's no middle ground on this. I actually put this on my Twitter, uh, a poll, asking people what they thought. And you can see the photos of these hellbenders on our website. That's stlpublicradio.org. Curious what you think about this. Um, but in this Twitter poll, 80% said they were super cute. Now, there was a, a pretty big Perfect. faction. 20%, yeah, they said they're ugly. Um, um, Jeff, where do you weigh in on that question? Well, I work with a lot of different private landowners, and I'll have to say most of them do say they look fairly ugly. Oh. Uh, the thing <laughs> keeps going that their face only a mother could love. But oh. I'll also admit, <laughs> after working with them for many, many years, you will fall in love with this animal. They're interesting, unique, and like Mark has stated, They've been in the fossil record for over 160 million years. Hmm. So falling in love, falling in love with a face that only a mother could love. Uh, give us an idea, Jeff. What made you fall in love with these guys? Well, my first hellbender I ever saw was 20 years ago hmm. when I started my job with the state of Missouri as the herpetologist. And I'll never forget the first hellbender I caught. I mean, I flipped this large rock in a river 
and I picked up this massive animal wondering if it was going to bite me or not. It intrigued me a lot. And then I just noticed its small eyes. And it's really just a gentle giant once mm. you get to know him. So he wasn't trying to attack you. He was just hanging out doing his own thing. Correct. So the name Hellbender, maybe that's part of why we might have the idea this is going to be a bat out of hell or something. Mark, do we have any idea how they originally got the, this name? Uh, it's, there are some myths behind that. People believe that, um, I guess, in the old times that they, when the animals were first seen, that they looked like an animal from the depths of hell. Hmm. Um, just because of their wrinkly skin and their unusual uh, look and the way they feel with the slime uh, layer, things like that. Um, but there are a lot of other names in history that these animals have been given, like snot otter, <laughs> old, old lasagna sides. Um, so the hellbender is, I think, the one that stuck, obviously, because of probably the word hell is in it. Yeah, people kind of like the feeling of, of saying something naughty, naughty. I have to say, though, snot otter is possibly the best nickname I have ever heard in my life. Like, can we yeah, just call them the snot otters for the rest of the show? <laughs> For sure. <laughs> <laughs> well, th thank you for acquiescing. I won't actually go there, but I do love the snot otter. But bigger picture, um, as much as we're having a little fun with their their questionable looks um, and their many hilarious nicknames, um, they are in jeopardy. Jeff, what has put them into jeopardy that we've seen such a decline in, in their populations here? Well, in Missouri, I mean, we've studied this animal for a long time, and we've noted up to an 80% decline throughout our, our state. And that's really a combination of factors. Not one is the primary, but some of the main focus has been degrading habitat, water quality, uh, diseases such as amphibian chytric fungus. And, and why we really focus on degrading habitat is as the forest is cleared down and it rains real heavy, all this sediment and fines go into our river systems. Mm -hmm. And they actually choke out the habitat that the hellbenders live in. They live under these large rocks. And as you get more gravel and fines, eventually their habitat's going to go away. So we try to do everything we can to protect this animal and its habitats. So, you know, I understand in theory, of course, it's, it's never a good idea for any species to be lost. But, but tell me, for, are there practical reasons why we need to fight for their salvation here in Missouri? Well, for in Missouri, I mean, just like most animals, I mean, hellbenders are an important leak to the food chain. Mm -hmm. I mean, they, they eat a lot of invertebrates in the, in the system. They eat crayfish especially crayfish, but in turn, they're eaten by birds and mammals. Uh, they are also a good indicator of environmental stresses. Amphibians absorb things through their skin, so we can look at contaminants and stuff. Personally, my favorite is, I mean, they are part of our unique biodiversity of the state of Missouri. Mm -hmm. We have 43 species of amphibians in this state, and I believe it's our job when we retire that these animals are still there for our future generations to learn about and to see. I think that's a great point. And, and how sobering to think. I mean, as you mentioned, this is a relic species. This has been around for so long. The idea of it going away on our watch, that, that seems like it should be a sobering thought even beyond all the really good points you're making there. Yes, indeed. And I, I would say my 20 years of working with this animal, if I was interviewed about 10 years ago, I would say the future was not very bright for this animal. But mm. due to all of our propagation efforts at the St. Louis Zoo, and the, the, the ground that we've gained recently, I am actually a lot more hopeful and know that 
in my lifetime, we have at least saved hellbenders for another generation while we continue to study them. Well, that is great to hear. And actually, those efforts that you guys both are working on here, um, this is this is part of what we wanted to talk to you about today. So, Mark, the St. Louis Zoo is actually involved in this. We might think of you guys as, as shoring up, say, tiger populations. But here you are getting involved with the hellbender. Is that unusual that, that you'd get involved with a, a Missouri animal like this, something that's maybe less charismatic on its face? Uh, no, not at all. I think in um, well, it's all in due. Uh, it's all in part due to the the Ron Gellner, the late Ron Gellner. Um, he had a passion for Missouri wildlife and hellbenders in particular. And sorry, who and, was Ron? Uh, Ron Gellner was uh, he was general curator of the St. Louis Zoo. Okay. Uh, prior to that, he was uh, curator of herpetology here, um, and um, he had a passion for Missouri wildlife, like I said, and um, had a special interest in hellbenders, and I, that's where this all started. And so this started, as you say, a good many years ago. Um, uh, uh, was this, what, about 20 years ago that the zoo first got involved? Yeah, give or take a few. Uh, 2002, um, I think, is when some of the first animals actually arrived at the zoo, um, and it wasn't until probably 2005 or six that we really started to ramp up the, the program and um, the the Wild Care Institute uh, was formed uh, around that time also, and it uh, became a center within the Wild Care Institute, and that's when everything sort of uh, started. We're talking today to Mark Warner. He's the zoological manager of herpetology at the St. Louis Zoo. We're also joined by Jeff Brigler, the state herpetologist for the Missouri Department of Conservation. And our topic today is the hellbender, or as I like to call them, the snot otter. Um, you can find pictures of those on our website. That's stlpublicradio.org if you want to access them even more quickly. They're there on our STL on air Twitter. Um, let us know what you think. Are these guys the cutest little, cutest, biggest salamanders you've ever seen or what? Um, the, the largest aquatic salamander in North America. So the zoo gets involved. There's this program. Uh, Mark, I'd love to hear uh, how this program works. Uh, of course. So uh, we <coughs> have adult hellbenders from um, select river systems in the state. Um, and then we also work collaboratively, collaboratively with the Missouri Department of Conservation and U.S. Fish and Wildlife. So uh, Dr. Jeff Brigler is probably one of the is the expert at finding wild nests of hellbender eggs. So um, we, uh, he will collect eggs a certain amount each year. We'll bring them in for head starting, where we hatch the eggs, raise them up to an age class that's releasable, and then we will release those animals. Um, in addition, we also uh, have a propagation center here where we have several streams uh, where we breed hellbenders uh, here at the zoo. Uh, hatch those eggs and release those animals also. So over the last, I would say, probably 13 years or so, we've released close to 8,000, if not more than 8,000 animals back into Missouri rivers. Hmm. So Jeff, you're the one finding these eggs. Uh, what do the eggs look like? How, how small are we talking? Well, for amphibians, they actually have very large eggs. Hmm. Uh, the actual egg is about the size of a pea. And okay, that doesn't sound large. How are you? How are you well, even beginning to find that in well, a, a, most, a stream? Uh, well, they're under large rocks and within cavities, hmm. and so they're kind of a, a yellowish color, and they have a big membrane around them, about the size of a quarter. 
Hmm. And they're attached to each other. So they're way back under these bedrock ledges where the male will guard them. And you say they're attached to each other. So we might see like 12 peas all in a row? Uh, actually, several hundred in a row. Oh, wow. Okay, so that's how you're able to find these guys. Yep. You're not looking for one pea. You're looking for a cluster of peas. Yes. Oh, well, what I'm really looking for is the attending male who guards those eggs and uh, his behavior at the entrance of the rock or the bedrock crevice. If, if he tries to attack me or bite me when I'm approaching him under the river, then there's a high probability that he does have eggs behind him. So and then the, we just use a clever little hook to remove them out from behind him. So these protective hellbenders, I honestly can't blame them for trying to attack you as, as you're going in to steal their eggs. And it makes perfect sense that you're going to have these hellbenders breeding there at the zoo. But why steal their eggs once they're already there laid? Well, we're not seeing large recruitment into the population, into the wild. So surveys after surveys, we catch big animals, but we rarely catch little ones. And back in the mid 2000s, we were we were really worried that these populations were going extirpated if we did not try to do something. And one of those avenues was to collect eggs from the wild or captively breed them. So by us going in there and removing some of these eggs, we don't take the entire clutch and mm -hmm. head start them ourselves. We're giving them a big jump to survive when we release them because they're much larger in size. So your sense is um, a bunch of these eggs wouldn't be making it. By, by sending them back to the wild when they're a little bigger, um, they've got a much better chance of making it. Yes, our survivorship for the animals that we're going to raise, putting them back, will definitely be greater than what will occur in the wild. I'm curious if there's any catch in trying to release them back to the wild. I guess we've all heard stories about animals who end up inadvertently domesticated, and then it's hard to to be there on their own. Is is that ever the case for these little guys? Uh, not that we know of. I mean, we take great care in feeding them at the St. Louis Zoo. We try to condition them to be ready for the river. We release them in multiple sizes, from very small to slightly larger. Uh, we don't want to raise them real large in size. We we want them fairly young, three to four years old when we release them so that we they're kind of red, river ready. Hmm. So basically everything we kind of do along the way, we, we are trying to improve their survivorship into the wild. There is just so much of this conversation that keeps stop, stopping me in my tracks. The idea of them being released when they're about three or four years old, how long is the lifespan for the hellbender? In the literature, it's reported they live about 25 to 30 years. We actually have a confirmed record in Missouri for 35 years. Wow. <laughs> um, Mark, am I right in thinking that seems a little unusual for a reptile? Well, it's not unusual for a reptile. For an amphibian, it, it is. Um, and uh, there are giant salamanders in Japan and, and China. And we do know that some of those animals have lived close to 100 years. So, you know, although the the record, like Jeff said, is 35 years, it's probably a good chance that they live longer than that. Hmm. Jeff also mentioned the idea of as you have them there in their toddler years, you're conditioning them um, for release. What does that entail? Uh, so we try and feed live food items, um, we, which we can't do all the time, so uh, just because of availability. Um, so staff are feeding them other items um, as they're growing up. But usually about six to eight months prior to any release, we take them off any of the frozen food items and any of those um, like keeper prepared items. And then we uh, just try and offer them a live food item. We try and manage them in a hands-off situation the best we can, hmm. uh, just so that they are get that 
kind of that idea that they don't aren't going to get a meal handed to them on a pair of metal tongs, mm-hmm. so to speak. Um, and um, we try and match water quality uh, to the native rivers. We also match temperature, uh, light cycles, all of those things. So we are trying to give them the best opportunity to uh, be a wild animal as they're released. Hmm. And if you weren't trying to sort of maintain your distance and, and help them sort of keep their wildness, um, are these an amphibian that, that would be affectionate with you or, or seem to develop some sort of connection? I'm not too sure about that. Um, usually when we talk about affection in, in reptiles or amphibians, it's typically the tortoises and maybe even some crocodilians uh, seem to have that ability. Uh, but with amphibians, I don't know that that's something that we would necessarily see. Hmm. Now, Jeff has a story that he could probably tell you that might be a little bit different. But um, as far as what we've seen here, no. Jeff, you've got to now tell me that story. Well, I've, I've been working with this animal for many years. And, and when I do go back and collect eggs from nest over a repeated time and seeing the same male, I mean, I'll have to say, I think over time they learn my behavior. Hmm. And, uh, sometimes they will sink back into their nest cavity so I don't see them. Uh, over time, they're very reluctant to bite me when I'm removing their eggs. So hmm. I think over time, just like I'm learning their behavior to find their eggs, they're learning my behavior for when I'm searching for eggs because they've seen me every year for many, many years now. And you think maybe they have a sense you're looking out for these eggs. I mean, if they're not trying to bite you anymore. Well, or they just gave up. They didn't <laughs> I, I might might win that, but but who knows what they're thinking at that time. But, I mean, ultimately, our thinking is we're doing the right thing for this animal to save it. Absolutely. Sure. And, and, Mark, i got to ask you, I've, I've been very curious about this egg harvesting process, but you also have um, salamanders uh, breeding there in the zoo. Are, are there any difficulties that go with getting hellbenders to do what nature wants them to do when they're there in captivity? Uh, originally, yes. Originally, we, we, there were a few things that we really had to trial and error, uh, just like any good scientific project. Um, but we... Uh, in 2011, 2012, we finally cracked that code, so to speak. Um, and ever since then, we've reproduced them basically on a yearly, a yearly basis. Um, there are a lot of challenges, though. They, they're an under, you know, an underwater animal, so that does provide a whole unique challenge to their care. Um, so we snorkel and dive in our streams, um, our outdoor streams, to check on the animals, look for eggs, to collect the eggs uh, during uh, egg-laying season. So. There are quite a few challenges that come with working with a species. It's not like working with a terrestrial species at all. Dare I ask how you cracked that code of, of getting the breeding to work? Uh, well, it, it really came down to, um, honestly, a simple water quality issue that we had we mm. had thought about but not really dove into deeply. Um, and it came, we believe, it came into that in a combination, uh, basically a combination of ideas. So water quality and then our nest Uh, nest availability or preference of nest sites. So um, the water quality issue came down to, we believe, just total dissolved solids, Hmm. uh, where we we tweaked our water quality a little bit. And uh, right around the same time that we added the artificial nest boxes. So we, uh, prior to the artificial nest boxes, we used like large cover stones and tried to recreate the bottom of a river. Um, However, uh, Jeff and I um, spent some time in Japan and China working with scientists there um, and came back with an artificial nest box idea of our own 
and that got um, installed into our rivers or our fake streams here, and it seemed to be the, the ticket that kind of made it work. It gave that male a, a nice secluded nest area that he could guard comfortably. He could keep other hellbenders out, at least the animals he wanted to be kept out, and it could keep um, like other predators that were in our streams also away from the eggs, and it just created like the perfect situation. Hmm. Well, so now you've got this very successful breeding program. You've released more than 8,000 of these. Um, Jeff, in your almost two decades working with these animals, what gives you hope that they can avoid local extinction? Well, what gives me the most hope right now is we're propagating them. We are finding eggs in the wild. We're releasing animals. And, and we're starting to learn a little more about those released animals. So these animals releasing, we know their survivorship has been very well to this point. The animals that we're catching to the, today are, appear very healthy. Mm -hmm. uh, we do know they're producing viable sperm now. The females are putting on eggs. So all the indications are showing we're making progress. The, the biggest milestone we're waiting for next next is to find a mother or dad that was raised at the St. Louis Zoo, released into the wild, actually reproducing, laying eggs and having fertilized eggs. So every year we're getting closer to that with the numbers we're releasing, and I just feel like we're making really good progress for this animal. Well, that's so exciting to hear, and I hope at some point uh, maybe you'll be able to stop stealing these eggs, and I don't mean to keep teasing you about that. I, I know you're doing God's work out there, but, man, it'd be nice to see these little guys do it on their own. So, uh, Jeff Brigler of the Missouri Department of Conservation, I want to thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. And Jeff, again, is the state herpetologist who's been working with these hellbenders now for about 20 years. And Mark Warner, I want to thank you for joining us. Thank you. It was a pleasure. And Mark is the zoological manager of herpetology at the St. Louis Zoo. And again, you can find these little guys on our website. You can also see them at, at uh, STL on air on Twitter. This is St. Louis on the air on St. Louis Public Radio, 90.7 KWMU. If you learned something new from today's episode, consider leaving us a review and rating on Apple Podcasts on the App Store. It's the easiest way to help people discover our show. We appreciate it. Thank you. Support comes from the Missouri Forest Products Association. Missouri produces wood pallets, railroad ties, white oak barrels, hardwood floors, and more. Details on the variety of products made in the state are at ChooseWood.com.